And now please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know about you, but I have this feeling that this, that this time we're in is so odd. That's definitely not the right word, but this time is hard to define. This past week, we passed the ominous point of more than 3,000 dead from the coronavirus in a single day. And not too long, we'll pass 300,000 dead for the year. Those are, those are statistics that make me pause and leave a heavy feeling in my heart. At the same time, it's Advent, which is such a wonderful time of year. I love having my Christmas tree up in my house. It went up a solid two weeks earlier than normal this year. And since I'm around my house more often than I would be otherwise, I'm indulging in more Christmas tunes than I normally would. Spotify really can put together a good playlist, just the right amount of old and new Christmas classics with a few particularly cheesy tunes thrown in for good measure. At the same time, they're not the usual series of fun holiday parties and get-togethers. The weather's been good this week, but I'm still spending a lot of time indoors. I feel as though I'm more aware of every nook and cranny in my home. I notice things around the house that I normally wouldn't. Hanging over all of this is the very real pain that many are experiencing this season. There are those who are out of work or underemployed. Their stories are in the paper, but also close to home. I personally know a lot of people who are suffering, whether from the loss of work, the loss of loved ones, both from COVID and other things, or from the mental health strain that this time has put us under. It's difficult not to feel it, to be unaware that pain is lurking over Advent. COVID places us in this horrible double bind. On the one hand, we have a virus, which is highly contagious, but the level of contagion is often unpredictable. The virus affects older people much more severely, but that's not always the case. It's capricious in a way that dogs our desire for certainty and planning. We also don't yet know the virus's long-term effects on the body or what a post-vaccine world will look like. And in spite of all this, we can't shut the country down again. There are far too many people who are suffering from mental health problems, substance abuse problems, and the loss of income. But even those effects, like the virus itself, fall so unequally across society. The other week, I was talking with my mother on the phone. In the course of the conversation, I pointed out that the COVID case rate in her county in Florida was higher than that in, of Harris County. She then mentioned one of her friends was tracking the caseload by zip code and that her zip code had one of the lowest rates around. Knowing the answer already, I asked where the highest infection rates near her were. The highest rates of infection were in the poor areas of her county, which are nearly entirely Latino. The people who live there have a lot harder time isolating because they all have to work. The conversation sat with me for a while. I was overjoyed that my mother is safe and yet torn because of how unequally the effects of this crisis has fallen on people. An odd advent for sure. And that's even without mentioning the utterly strange and weird attempts to overturn the presidential election results. I won't even go there. Now, when John the Baptist began his ministry from the Judean wilderness in John chapter 1, he also must have thought it was an odd time. 
Palestine was under Roman control, but with the active support of the sons of Herod the Great, who were Jews. The Jewish religious world was fractured into different sects, each arguing with one another about how best to live as Jews. At the same time, there was great distress among the population, so much so that the population was never far off from revolt. Lingering in the background was this expectation for the Messiah to arrive. Would he? What would it look like? It was a word on most people's lips. Into this odd time enters John the Baptist. And when the Pharisees come out to question John in our text, they want to know who he is. How does he fit into this whole mess? Is he the one who's going to fix it? John responds unequivocally, no, I'm not the one. But there is one coming after me who will be. I can almost hear in this response something else. I can only do so much amidst the pain. But there's hope nonetheless. The one who is coming will be, in the words of John, the light of the world. The one who will bring light, God's light. By God's light, we'll be able to see right from wrong, God's ways from the ways of the world, with the one coming after will come justice and healing. Things will be set right. John knows that he can't make sense of his odd time and all its suffering. But there's one who will bring hope. When I consider the message of hope amidst the pain, I can't help but think of all the wonderful Christmas movies this time of year. Do you know what I mean? Now, I have to admit that I'm not normally a big Christmas movie junkie. I don't usually watch Christmas movies, but this is not a normal Advent season. Now, this past week, I was relaxing with my boyfriend, Jared, on my couch, and we were trying to decide what to watch on TV. Jared reeled off a list of about five super cheesy Christmas movies, including the new Hallmark Christmas movie that features a gay couple and Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. Needless to say, none of these held much interest for me, so I proceeded to scroll through just about every single thing on Netflix. Now, I swear I was scrolling for only about 15 minutes, but Jared assures me it was closer to 50. Anyway, apparently, I'm an indecisive Netflix scroller. Are you? Anyway, I finally narrowed it down to two options I liked and turned to Jared to ask which he preferred. Jared stared back at me and said, I told you at the beginning what I wanted to watch. <laughs> Realizing that I was not the paragon of love and care at that moment, I chose the better part of valor and handed him the remote control. Jared then proceeded to put on Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. Now, the movie begins with shots of the cheapest movie set I think I've ever seen in my life, complete with Dolly Parton herself dressed as a beggar, although beggar is a strong term for how Dolly is dressed. Jared categorized it more as distressed chic. Within minutes of the opening credits, I was watching what had to be the campiest dancing I have ever seen on screen, mixed with this weird Bible Belt sensibility. Jared was loving it. Curious, I checked out the movie's IMDb rating online. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with it, IMDb allows viewers to rate films on a scale of 1 to 10. On their scale, any movie above 8 is truly excellent. A movie somewhere in the sevens is almost always quite good. A movie in the high sixes can be good, but by the time you get to the low sixes, the movies become truly terrible. Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square had a 5.2 rating. When Jared heard the rating, he scoffed. This is clearly a 10. Trying not to roll my eyes as I watched this travesty unfold before me on the screen, I offered, 
Well, maybe they meant five times two, not 5.2. Jared nodded in acknowledgement that that indeed made more sense for this masterpiece of Dolly Parton's unique style. Now, Jared is most definitely a morning person, which I am not. And shortly after the campy dancing scene, Jared fell asleep on my shoulder. Not wanting to disturb him and unsure of whether he was fading in and out, I resigned myself to the inevitable and I watched the movie. Now, I can assure you, for those of you who haven't seen it, that Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square is in fact a 5.2 movie at best. And yet, since I have more than an average share of melodrama in my heart, I found myself oddly moved by the easily predictable plot. The movie is your standard rewrite of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, where the greedy main character finally has her heart changed when she realizes what actually matters most in life. Even though I knew it was coming, how could you not, I did have one small tear run down my cheek as the main character experienced the light of the world coming into her life. And that's really what we like about these cheesy Christmas movies, some of which, like It's a Wonderful Life, are really quite excellent. The plots are all variations on a theme, and the theme goes back to our text in John 1. There's only so much we can do amidst a world of pain. We struggle and meet its various challenges as best we can. At a certain point, we have to be like John and say, I'm not the one who can do it all. Then we need to have faith that God will show up to heal, to reconcile, and to shine light on the world. It's that hope that John attests to. That very same hope is in all these Christmas movies as well. If nothing else, the Advent season is supposed to remind us of the optimism that underlies our belief in God. All of this brings me back to the author that I discussed last week, Dr. Martin Seligman. Now, Martin Seligman is a psychologist who made his professional name by studying helplessness. He demonstrated that helplessness could be learned. With enough negative inputs, enough failure, enough pessimism, you could turn a dog or even a human into someone who was truly helpless. That person could learn to be someone who constantly underperformed life in so many ways. Then an interesting turn happened to Seligman. He wondered that if you could teach helplessness to someone, could you also teach optimism to someone? If so, what would that actually look like? This new psychology of optimism was far more than trying to build up someone's self-esteem. By the time Seligman was doing his first research on optimism, it was already clear that the self-esteem movement of the 70s and 80s had major problems with it. People who have been constantly told how great they are and shielded from competition and failure tend not to be the most resilient when life deals them a tough blow. So if self-esteem boosting doesn't build resilience and happiness, what does? It turns out that about half our sense of optimism is linked to our genes. If we have optimistic parents, we're likely to be more optimistic, regardless of what happens to us. The same thing holds true for people who are naturally pessimistic. Some of that is hardwired, and there are evolutionary benefits to both perspectives. But in our contemporary world, the value of optimism cannot be overstated. The good news is that people can be trained to be better optimists by shifting their perspective on the world. And these shifts are quite logical when you actually think about them. 
Now, just as he did last week, which I found so convenient, <laughs> Seligman breaks things down into threes. In this case, three Ps that matter for how to shape an optimistic worldview on the world. The first P is permanence. People who are naturally pessimistic tend to see bad things as indicative of a permanent state. I got a bad grade in an assignment, therefore I'm not a good student. One bad result speaks to a permanent position. So FCC went through a period of decline in the late 90s and, and the 2000s. The pessimist would say, therefore the church is bound always to decline. We might as well start packing things up. When a good thing happens, the pessimist sees it as a one-off occurrence and not permanent. I just succeeded in this one business deal. Well, a broken clock is always right twice a day. An optimist does exactly the opposite of the pessimist. She tends to interpret negative events as a one-off occurrence and positive things as permanent. I just closed this business deal. That's the first of many. That's an optimist view. I failed this test in school. What would the optimist say? Oh, well, it's just one test. This test was particularly hard. That's the first P, permanence. To be an optimism, you see the good things as permanent and the bad things as temporary. The second P is pervasiveness. Pessimists tend to see one bad thing as indicative of a whole range of other bad things as well. I just failed this test in school. Well, I'm a failure at everything I do. I got a speeding ticket. That fits. The rest of my life is, is falling apart too. For the pessimists, while the negative events indicate pervasiveness, the positive events only apply to that, that one thing. I made a great investment in that property. At least I was able to do one thing right. The optimist, on the other hand, sees negative events as related to that one area of life and positive events indicative of a broader good. So, for instance, we have a great music program at FCC. Wasn't that choral piece excellent? Well, of course it was. The optimist would respond, FCC does all sorts of great things, especially for a church its size. I got a speeding ticket? Oh, well, it's just a speeding ticket. Not the best, but not the end of the world. The third and final P is personal. The pessimist sees negative events as a result of a flaw in them personally. I failed that test because I'm stupid. The optimist might say, I failed that test because it was hard. The pessimist might say, that guy cut me off in traffic. He is a, you know, fill in the blank. An optimist might say, that guy cut me off. He must be in a hurry. How personal do you make a statement? That question matters. Now, Seligman is careful to say that an, optimist, an optimistic way of looking at things must be thoroughly based in reality. Again, let's return to the school example. You fail a test and you reasonably get mad. Then the pessimist in you says, I'm stupid. But when you sit back and think about it a bit more, you realize that there are other potential reasons why you failed that test, reasons that are based in reality. Rather than being stupid, perhaps it was because for that one test you didn't study enough. That is something that you can fix for the next test. Perhaps that test was particularly difficult. Perhaps this one subject or subject area doesn't interest you. There are multiple explanations that are based in fact. To a certain degree, you can choose how to interpret an event and how you interpret that event can make all the difference. It comes down to permanence 
pervasiveness, and how personal it is. Whenever you can seek interpretations, real and valid interpretations, that make the negative temporary, singular, and not about you, and make the positive permanent, pervasive, and personal, optimism follows. Optimism is a learned skill, according to Seligman. We can and should work on it to make us happier, more satisfied, and more successful people. This, of course, brings me back to Advent and all those Christmas movies. Advent, at its core, brings hope to people. Why? Because the coming of Jesus brought a permanent change to the world. Human history is undoubtedly different because of Jesus. Jesus' teachings and his ongoing presence in the church attest to that permanence. He brings new hope, a new way of seeing things. To believe in Jesus as the Messiah is to believe that is to believe that, that, that he is the key to unlocking deep truths about God and ourselves. Knowing Jesus and being involved in a church can make a permanent change for us. The message of Jesus is also pervasive. It was not limited to his own time and place, but is spread throughout the world and has shown a remarkable capacity to be adapted to different times and cultures. The message of Jesus impacts our whole lives, how we live, how we work, how we relate to others, to God, and to ourselves. The message of Jesus is also deeply personal. Jesus and his message of love, forgiveness, and grace is a message for you personally. That's what makes it so powerful. It doesn't just change society. It changes you as well. The best Christmas movies capture this optimism in their basic message. There's something special about the Christmas season each year the so-called Christmas spirit. Each year we get to hear the same message, a message that we need to hear. That's why we watch those same movies over and over again. There is a permanence to this season, this spirit. The message of this season is also pervasive. It's everywhere in society. We get caught up in it, which is why all the sights and sounds of the season can bring us such hope. These movies are also deeply personal. That's why they continue to move us year after year. They speak to our souls. Think of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. In the movie, George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, contemplates suicide because of a crisis in his life. Then a guardian angel appears to save him from his folly. He shows him that the bad fortune that Bailey is experiencing is not some permanent thing for him, and nor does, nor does it define his life. His life has brought so much joy and so many good things to so many people. The character, George Bailey, begins as the ultimate pessimist and ends the movie as a true optimist. The good things persist. The good things in George Bailey's life are personal, permanent, and pervasive. Life, a good life based on the values that Jesus lived, is a life worth living in spite of the pitfalls that life offers. This is the third Sunday in Advent, which is traditionally celebrated as a Sunday of joy. It's a time when we seek authentic joy in the season. It's something we need this time of year, more than any other I can think of. If we want to find Christmas joy, I encourage us to take an optimistic view on things, a view that comes from the great message of Jesus coming into the world. The good of this world is permanent. It persists and wins out again and again. We see it all around us, particularly this time of year. The joy of Christmas is pervasive. It changes things, big and small, alike. 
And it's personal. It's a message for you. It's a message for me. So let's all practice the discipline of optimistic living. Let's learn from this text. And may that learning help us to become beacons of joy, guardian angels, if you will, to those who need it most.